Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor. Today is February 6th. Joined by Simon Belanger. Another Saturday recording, Simon. So we are we are fresh. We're ready to hit this episode hard. How you doing? It's a beautiful sunny day here right now. Yeah, yeah I'm doing great. I think uh, we might try to do Saturday's recordings once in a while because, uh, like you just said, I feel a lot fresher than uh, recording after uh, a long day at work. So um, should be a good one, I think. Yeah, we also record like late in the week too, and it's just like it's a yeah, it's a it's a tough scene. Um, okay, so let's talk about. We got lots of stuff to talk about. Simon's going to talk about some earnings. Uh, before that, obviously last week we talked about the mania that ensued. Needs no introduction. And uh, a lot of those companies, you know, some of the Wall Street bet favorites are down in a major way. I think GameStop's back to like a $4 billion in market cap. These things happen, right? And... It's important to recognize that they happen more often than not. And uh, some people make boatloads of money if they time it correctly. And uh, I, so I saw an interesting thing, right? This is statistically probably what happened, is that a few people made a boatloads of money, including hedge funds, by the way. Uh, there are some hedge funds that were long the stock, and made boatloads of cash. So like this notion that it's like retail versus hedge funds is like, no, it was retail versus like one hedge fund. Um, so these things happen, right? And, and it's important to remember that they happen more often than people remember. Uh, speaking on that same note, Simona, I, I texted you about that face drive company. Did you, did you yeah. look into it? <laughs> I mean, I looked a little bit into it. It's just uh, just based on the financials. It's uh, it's quite something. I've never. I mean, it's just uh, a lot of keywords and kind of reminds me of well-held technology, but even even worse, to be honest. But oh, uh, way I'll worse. Let you elaborate on that. Yeah, I mean, Well's good at selling some telehealth play when the revenue is really not the revenue mix is not really from telehealth. Uh, that's one thing, you know, that's a legitimate business though. Like they, they operate a fairly legitimate business face drive ticker FD on the Toronto venture exchange just hit 5 billion in market cap. This company does $700,000 in sales. Like, $700,000 in sales is not a lot uh, for any company. It's like small business, you know, a, a thriving small business does 700 k in revenue a year. This thing is worth $5 billion in market cap, is a stock promotion on steroids. The management team, I looked into their past, all have a bit of a sketchy past. They're very smart about how they do this. By the way, uh, we can get in lots of trouble for calling things uh, the F word and it ends with odd. Uh, so I'm talking about fraud. 
<laughs> you could get lots of trouble. So this is not investing advice, of course. Do your own due diligence. But this company, in my mind, is a zero. Like a legitimate zero. Hindenburg Research, the short seller, came out with a report in July of the summer of last year talking about how it's probably a zero. They have a super low float, uh, meaning that the stock's really illiquid and that they just pump it, uh, the insiders pump it. It's gone to outrageous valuations. What the business does is they claim they are a environmentally friendly ride-sharing program, like only have electric vehicles. And uh, they have two active... One on the app, they have two active drivers in the city of Toronto, which is their target market. Two drivers. So if I'm going to take this ride-sharing program, there's only two of them, they're across the city, like, no. How on earth are they going to compete with Uber and Lyft? Yeah, I mean, it might work in Ottawa, but Toronto, you need more than two drivers, right? You need more than two drivers. <laughs> Anyways, it's this... Uh, so the main three like verticals I was looking at in the Hindenburg Research Report is uh, electric vehicle ride sharing, which is a business that just really doesn't exist. Food delivery that have 17 active restaurants on the app. 17. Dude, that's like one block. Like that ain't enough. Um, and they like sell their own merch. Like what a joke, man. This company is a zero worth five billion in market cap be careful out there don't try to chase gains on this thing uh oh my god i i hate that short sellers on this who are like trying to call out something that's not worth what it is and they're getting their faces ripped off because it just keeps going higher and higher so be careful out there with that one that's uh calling it now february 6 2021 Face drive ticker FD on the venture exchange is a zero. So, uh, all right, Simon, let's move on to uh, some more optimistic news. You've been listening to some conference calls this morning. Uh, two companies you own reporting some good results. So, uh, I'll let you take the floor. Yeah. So the first one has uh, been has a more of a Canadian twist to it. So it's BP. So Brook, Brookfield Renewable Partners. Um, it was a really great year from Brookfield. I'm not gonna do a deep dive or anything like that because we have talked about them before. But their um, their funds from operation increased six percent. Uh, they'll increase their dividend by five percent. So they're kind of in that target range that they keep saying. I believe it's five to nine percent every year. Um. What really was highlighted to me in management uh, is um, a couple of things when they were talking. So the first one, they're really getting um, their purchasing power when it comes to wind turbine is really showing right now because they have really good connections with the big manufacturer of wind turbines. And that's one of their big segments. So they have a really a uh, cost advantage when you compare them to smaller players there. Um, Another thing that was really interesting from the conference call, obviously, they invested a lot in uh, 2020. Uh, they had $4.6 billion invested across 10 transactions. Uh, they completed the merger of Terraform Power. And a lot of these transactions are not only to acquire businesses that produce renewables right now, so basically adding the, the cash flow from that, but it's also that those businesses has have project in the pipeline as well and there's a lot of organic projects as well in the pipeline for brookfield renewable um it's been 
really a great year, obviously, for the stock in terms of return. Um, it's been one of the, it's my, one of my biggest, actually, it's my biggest holding. So full disclosure on that. I'm not saying 2021 will give you as good returns. It might be flat in 2021, just based on the fact that they had the crazy run up in 2020. But I really don't think you can go wrong with them on a long term horizon so 10 15 20 years in the future and you have to think too that uh, the biden administration in the u.s will be uh, quite a bit uh will help him quite a bit in terms of their big push towards renewable energy and they're really seeing as well a lot of corporation and governments around the world really pushing for that renewable energy so I mean, they're really on the right side of it. They're one of the biggest players in the world when it comes to that. So I can only see them, you know, it's, I don't see any issues uh, with Brookfield, at least in the, the near to medium term. Um, do you have any, any comments on them, Braden, before I move to, to the next one? No, I, I don't. I mean, great year, excellent year for shareholders. That's for sure. Uh, you've benefited from that. Many people have benefited from that. I own the asset management business, which owns sixty-one percent of BEP. Uh, so that's that's my play there. But uh, yeah, great year and congrats, dude! You're crushing it with this one. Yeah, yeah, really. It was a great conference call to to like. And uh, again, I think we've said it before. Whether it's the Brookfield Asset Management or Brookfield Renewables or BIP, any of their subsidiaries, um, the management is really great over there. So now on to the next one, uh, PayPal. So PayPal had quite a year. I mean, it's no surprise with the pandemic, a lot of people switched over to digital payments. Um, they already had a really good base and their year was quite amazing despite eBay representing a smaller, smaller and smaller portion to their revenues. So a lot of the people that were kind of bearish on PayPal a few years ago, a lot of them were pointing to the fact that eBay was still a big part of the revenues. Well, even despite that, um, I'll tell you some of the highlights in their numbers and it's just, it's crazy. Um, so in terms of active accounts, so they had 377 million active accounts. So um, that includes 29 million active merchant accounts. So that's a 24% increase year over year. Um, they added 72.7 million new active accounts. That's a 95% increase year over year. They obviously blew their target out of the water because they were not predicting a pandemic uh, with their um, their forecasts early last year. Um, customer engagement has really increased year over year as well. I won't go into too much detail for that, but revenues as a whole has increased 20, 21% a year over year to 21.45 billion. And their free cash flow, and obviously a metric that we like, is uh, $5 billion for the year, and that's a 23% uh, of revenue. So the free cash flow margins are just uh, quite something. And there has been an increase in certain expenses, but uh, it's it's been uh, just a ban a year for PayPal. And they're having an investor day, um, I think, in the next couple of weeks, and they'll basically project the um, their 
five-year plan. So I do like that because it shows that Dan Schulman and the management at PayPal, they really have a long-term approach, and I do like that. Um, and they one of the couple of things that came out from uh, when Dan Schulman was speaking on the conference call is they really saw an acceleration of digitization, uh, basically pushed forward three to five years due to the pandemic, and they really believe they've done surveys with their clients that this will probably not stop once the pandemic stopped. The biggest factor behind that is people love the convenience. So a lot of people that were not already used to shopping online or using PayPal services, the pandemic actually forced them to use it. And now they, the, what they're, the feedback they're getting is that people are really enjoying the convenience of that. Um, one of the big surprises for them was the buy now, pay later function functionality that they have installed in PayPal. Um, it's really exceeded the management expectation. So they said that was their biggest surprise for the year. Um, they mentioned crypto quite a few times. It surprised me how many times Dan Schulman mentioned that on the conference call. But they're really what the, their plan based on what they were saying, is really working with regulators and central banks to kind of become the rails of the new digital payment space and financial services space going forward. Um, so I do like the approach that uh, that they're taking towards that. And uh, I own PayPal, and I know that they're at a all-time high right now, and I'm looking at adding more. It's just, um, yeah, 5, 10, 15 years in the future, I think they're going to be uh, become one of the Goliaths in the uh, digital payments industry. And they've done nothing but execute what you're saying exactly <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> they've been I, they've been crushing it i mean shocking they had an amazing year in a pandemic when you know digital payments needs to be the future uh so a lot of that acceleration was pulled forward and it leave it leaves me to a question when i think about paypal and i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this is when i think about paypal what's it Three hundred billion in market cap now, close to that. Uh, yeah, I don't. All right, let me look it up. But that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you check that, and then okay. So, it yeah, three fifteen. Three fifteen in market cap. Yeah. Okay. So it it leads me to the question that while big tech is reporting this last week with blowout numbers, it's like a one point seven trillion dollar company did what? In revenue growth, like it, it's a lot of like, how is this even possible? When I'm reading the reports and seeing the results of how the law of large numbers with these big companies, it's incredible how sustained these growth rates have been um, with the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, you know, the, the, the fan mags. And I'm wondering. Well, first of all, we mu we must have been just so underpricing them. Like Microsoft was just so underpriced five years ago, and these sustained growth rates just keep passing what anyone was thought was possible. So I'm looking at what companies are growing in that category. A couple hundred billion in market cap, you know, not the not the mega cap companies. Which ones are we just underpricing their sustained growth? And right now just looks so expensive when you look at the multiples. And PayPal kind of comes comes into that conversation, right? It's 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 gonna be very difficult for them to 
not do well in this ecosystem, right? Like it, that's the kind of business you want to own. So I'm I'm curious on to hear your thoughts. Like it feels like a, a like a a company that could have a, a T on the market cap in this decade. Um, and it, it's, I think we could be underpricing things like this, even when we look at like a price to earnings or a price to sales and it just looks so expensive. Right. So I'm curious your thoughts on that, because if, if you are adding to it here, right, you're like, you know, it's, you know, it's not cheap by any traditional measure. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely. I'm not gonna go ahead and say that uh, it's a cheap stock. It it is not by any traditional measures, but just the fact that you know one of the things that I love about PayPal, and you really want to keep an eye, especially on those kind of fine fintech plays, tech plays, is you want to see continued innovation, and you don't want to see them kind of staying or sitting on their laurels. And really, PayPal is. Um, and Dan Schulman with his leadership, I think they're really continuing to innovate. And one of the things I didn't mention is um, next year they'll have the functionality where, um, let's say, if uh, it, I think it's still going to be in the U.S., but someone could have, for example, Bitcoin in their PayPal account and PayPal will basically facilitate the payments. So if a customer wants to buy something online and use their bitcoin to do so so paypal will facilitate that and then the transaction to the merchant the merchant can still receive us dollars if he wants to receive it and that's just it just shows whether you're bitcoin bull or not doesn't matter it's just it's just an example to show that they're really embracing new technologies. They're really putting some new functionalities. There's a lot of organic growth as well. And one of the interesting questions to Dan Schulman was like, oh, what's your strategy on um, uh, M&A, right? Uh, acquisitions. And they said, look, we have certain criterias we look at when we look uh, at acquisition, but we also have a lot of really valuable internal resources and we can really develop a lot of these tools so it has to make sense for us to make an acquisition and on the most part they would only consider an acquisition if really it makes more sense for them to acquire technology or company or the the workforce related to that than developing it internally um, so that's really what i'm looking at so innovation i think is probably the biggest factor um, in continuing growth for these type of companies so i personally think that the sky is the limit for paypal and they're really doing kind of i i mean i don't really have anything bad to say with uh with the results that came out and they're just uh, yeah it's like a free cash flow machine and they have a positive cash position compared to uh their net debt so yeah it's just uh, a great business and i think that's how people should look not only at paypal but those other big tech companies just the innovation part i think is the most important yeah innovation and optionality i believe are the two secret sauces for sustained growth rates especially probably on the optionality side okay well thanks for that Simon. that's a that's a great year i'm looking at the metrics here you have on the google doc from their, their presentation <laughs> yeah. it's like oh i think they did pretty good in 2020 so uh good for them i'm still an idiot and waiting i have this maybe i'm naive i have this hope that stripe is going to go public one day and uh I'm just missing out on like Aiden and PayPal and Square 
as I wait for what I think is the best company in the bunch, which is actually private, which is Stripe. So that's okay. Uh, Moving forward, I'm going to talk about something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, Um, mostly just because of the books I've been reading. It talks about something called the twin engines. So the twin engines is a concept of what makes great stock returns. If we were to look back at all the huge winners in the last couple decades, monster winners and, and periods of just vast outperformance of the market, there's something very common between them. So you either have a company like we were talking about that just continues to grow at huge rates that the market's underpricing. It's like they can't possibly continue to grow that fast, and then they do. Kind of like Amazon. There's like there's no way they continue to have 45% top-line revenue growth for another decade, and then they do it. So that's one way to have exceptional returns, which is very difficult, right? Like it's it's hard to be conservative in your assumptions and, and throw on like a 45% revenue growth number on it. Like that's most people would think you're out of your mind. So that's like one way to have exceptional returns. But another way that's actually more common with big winners is growth plus multiple expansion. When I say multiple expansion, like most just like the, the earnings multiple. So something that's trading like like an Apple in 2015 that's trading at 12 times earnings for a company that's growing earnings per share at 30% a year, that's a big disconnect. So usually that means that the market has something wrong. The market has a narrative that's incorrect. So in Apple's example, it was that there's no way that the iPhone can continue to dominate. This is a tech, no, this is a tech hardware play. And we've seen what happens with the other phone makers. They kind of die. We've seen what happened to BlackBerry. We've seen what happens to Nokia. And there's just no way they continue to dominate this ecosystem. So Apple trades at 12 times earnings because of that narrative. For a company that's growing extremely fast, creating a moat, developing an ecosystem, the uh, customers love the product. They're addicted to the products. And, uh, you know, they're growing earnings at 35% a year and have $100 billion in cash on the balance sheet. So when that happens and the market realizes, okay, uh, this is sustained dominance from a company, we're going to throw on now like a 25 or 30 times earnings multiple. Now, right away, the company's going to 3x just on that multiple expansion. So it went from like a 10 to a 30. Uh, so there's that multiple expansion. But then also the sustained growth on top of it to uh, you know, maintain that multiple expansion when it gets there. And that's called the twin engines because one, you have growth, and two, you have multiple expansion. And I'm trying – I've always tried to find those companies. And screeners are great for that. Screeners are great for trying to find a disconnect between growth and value. And I just wanted to mention it because I see so much about people say, oh, I'm a value investor. Oh, I'm a growth investor. 
It's like, sure, whatever you want to call it, but do you like making money? Because if you want to make money, you got to do both. Uh, it's what Warren Buffett has done. It's uh, what Charlie Munger told Warren Buffett. Yeah, sure. I mean, you could find really cheap multiples of stocks, but if you can find great businesses trading at wonderful prices or wonderful businesses trading at wonderful prices, now you have what's, you know, the, yeah, now you have the twin engines. You have multiple expansion and growth. So I'm thinking about that a lot lately um, and trying to find that disconnect. And that's where growth and value are actually attached at the hip. And I believe that to be a great way to execute a long-term strategy. And I, and I know you're aligned on that one, Simon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of that. The only thing I would say is the best, better strategy is buying GameStop at $4 and then, you know, selling it at 300 bucks a share. But aside from that, I think because oh, that's so repeatable and so easy to do. Right. Of course. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I was being facetious, but uh, no, no, definitely agree with what you said. Yeah. Yes, that's a twin engines. I'm going to talk about another conceptual concept after, but it is February now, and this is about the time of the year people start thinking about their taxes. So, Simon, let's talk RSPs. Uh, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I guess uh, per PSA, right, that the uh, deadline is coming up for uh, at on March 1st, 2021. If you want to contribute to your RSP and apply them, uh, apply those contributions to the 2020 tax year. Uh, so just remember that. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, we had an interesting comment from uh, from someone who said he's a, a taxation lawyer in Canada and, uh, you know, gave us some props for the show, which was very nice. But he gave us a few horror stories with uh, some clients and uh, one of them was... Uh, people passing away while they still have a huge balance in their RSP when they're retired and um, basically saying that the government takes roughly 50% of that. So I'm not sure exactly if that's all 100% accurate or not, but regardless, um, it just shows the importance of having a plan for withdrawals uh, for your RSP. Um, TFSA is not, you know, Obviously, TFSA, there's not that penalty that you don't, you're already taxed on it. So any gains that you make, you can just withdraw them, no issues. Um, if you, a lot of people don't think about this, but if you have a year or two or po potentially more, and even if you're in 30s or 40s where your income is significantly lower, that's actually not a bad opportunity to look into withdrawing RSP because um, that means that your tax bracket would be lower and you could withdraw your RSP and then just direct the funds into a TFSA, for example, if you have room or if you don't, a taxable account, which taxes would be a bit friendlier there. Um, the reason why I'm mentioning that is people, a lot of people are just focused on, you know, RSP when they retire. And it is true what he's saying is... I think we've been kind of programmed into thinking that it's always RSPs, right? It's always you get bombarded with that info from all the financial institution at this time of year towards the end of the, the year as well. And we always think, you know, people automatically think that they have to contribute to RSPs and it may not be the best solution for people. But at the same time, having a withdrawal plan is really important. Um, just a few notes of cautions when you are withdrawing from an RSP is that 
there is basically withholding taxes that are applied by the financial institution. So this applies to every province except Quebec. Quebec is a bit different. Um, I believe the rates are higher in Quebec. So if you withdraw up to $5,000, the withholding tax rate from the financial institution is 10%. From $5,001 to $15,000, it's 20%. And from $15,000 to anything above that is 30%. The reason why I'm mentioning is when you withdraw those that withholding tax is actually to make sure that you pay your your income taxes on those amount but those rates might not actually be the rates your effective rate so even if you get taxed at 20 you know let's say the 20 percent bracket from 5,000 to 15 well your effective rate could be 25 30 35 percent so don't get the false impression that you've already paid your taxes on it because chances are um, you'll have a nasty surprise when you do file your taxes because you'll owe even more. So just make sure you plan accordingly for that and that you're aware that the withholding tax may not cover all the taxes that you need to uh, to pay when you do withdraw RSPs. But um, yeah, just something I wanted to mention, that comment that we had from our listener was uh, definitely brought it up to light. Um, I know it's the deadline's coming up, but it's something that uh, people should consider when making and withdrawing from their RSPs. Excellent point. And for some reason, people think you know, contributing to their RSP is just kind of always, like, an always a great thing to do. Like, how could it ever be a bad thing to do? And there's lots of scenarios where it just doesn't make sense to contribute to it or or to continue to contribute to it. If you have a pension and you're going to have high income, if you have a business that has, you know, income that you're going to be getting uh, even after retirement... You got to think about all those cash flows because it could be horribly tax inefficient to be using an RRSP. So if your TFSA is maxed and you're contributing, it might make a whole lot of sense to have it in a non-registered account and, and pay typical capital gains taxes. And that is a conversation that people need to start having because the RRSP is, is a... Yes, but maybe not, right? So it's something to consider. If you have, if you already have a lot in your RSP, you don't need to necessarily keep contributing to it because depending on how you're you're withdrawing on it and your retirement and how many years, like we're getting into some complex like financial planning now, but it just might not make sense to keep contributing to it. So people need to start having those conversations. Yeah, exactly. Just make sure you have a plan. I think that's the the most important thing is having a plan for your RSPs, whether it's for your contributions, but also for withdrawing, whether it's a bit before your retirement or while you're at retirement. Make sure you have a plan. Make sure you take your whole financial uh, situation into consideration, and then you'll be able to assess whether it makes sense for you or not. Yes, sir. And it's unfortunate because the number where an RSP becomes tax inefficient is just not high enough anymore for what people need to retire, which is, you know, not to get too Debbie Downer, but it's just not that tax inefficient if you actually hit your retirement number. So something to consider. Um, Okay. Bottleneck businesses. 
is the last topic for the today and something that uh, I talked about on another podcast a while back. And I don't think I've ever mentioned it on this podcast. And it's one of it's in my framework for what I think of good businesses are. Uh, I use this term. This term I stole from Chuck Aker. And I don't know if he's the original, uh, if he originally coined this term, but uh, he's getting the credit for it right now in this podcast. So bottleneck businesses, and for those people who don't know Chuck Aker, he runs Aker Capital Management. They have been uh, exceptional capital allocators. And I think the way he thinks about the world and the way he thinks about investing, a lot of people can learn from. And it's all on his site the Acre Capital Management. He has a really cool concept called the three-legged stool, bottleneck businesses, what he thinks are great businesses. And uh, and if you blog post, you can learn a ton. So that's that's Acre Capital Management. So bottleneck businesses. I don't actually really like the name of it. So I kind of want to rip off Acre and then rename it because bo- when I think of bottleneck businesses, I think of as bad because in the corporate world, you know, a bottleneck is not good. It's just kind of clogging your process. So, but in, in this in this scenario, so bottleneck businesses, what they are is if you think about a bottleneck, it goes from a wide diameter to a small diameter. So think of it as like a funnel, right? Things are being funneled to this business. So there's a few characteristics I think that m- bottleneck businesses have is is to be honest, a lot of them are monopolistic. Let's not kid ourselves. Is that they're fed more opportunity because of how good their business model is, and it is a they're funneled opportunities. And if they don't exist, the value chain kind of falls apart. So that's that kind of monopolistic thing to it, right? So the example I always use, I know I talk about payments so much on this podcast, but I mean, if it represents what my net worth is in. So how about that? If you think about digital payments, uh, and most importantly, like the, the credit card acceptors, the merchant and consumer connection, the rails that have been made by Visa and MasterCard. If a business is to grow and accept payments online and execute some strategy or even just grow sales, that's good for these digital payments companies. So they are given opportunity without even investing in it. And that's why you see their free cash margins like over 40%. You know, they turn so much of revenue into, uh, into free cash flow. And it's because they don't have to invest a lot of CapEx anymore. There's, they've already built this ecosystem, and it's going to continue to grow. And they're fed more opportunities because of how good their business is. And that as other people grow, they're doing a lot of the innovation and growth for you. Uh, businesses that I think are becoming quite bottleneck right now is Shopify. You know, as people excel and make wonderful businesses online and sell great products and have this awesome e-commerce experience, 
Shopify is benefiting from that because, you know, there's the transaction fees, this is the SaaS subscription. So they're being fed more opportunity than other constituents. And they're really important in that ecosystem. And if they were to go away, it would be a real shock to the system. Like if Shopify was to go away, go away for a day, that'd be really bad. Um, Apple, maybe by nature, is a bottleneck business. You know, if you want to exceed on the App Store, you have to play in their ecosystem. You have to play by their rules. And they're just fed more and more opportunity as other people want to engage in their ecosystem. So companies that are creating that moat, creating that importance, uh, maybe a little monopolistic in nature, those businesses are the ones that I want to own for the long term and just possess a lot of really good qualities. So I really like the concept of the bottleneck business and it helps me really think about companies that are being given more opportunity because of not only the sector that they play in, like they have they have that that tailwind with them, but also like all these people innovating inside and excelling and, and being successful inside of that ecosystem just benefits the mothership. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. So I, I love this concept. So that's that's the bottleneck biz there, Simon. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great business model, obviously. Um, and I mean, I think you explained it quite well. I think I was using the, the funnel business model, but I think we were talking about the same thing earlier. But it's yeah, the same no, thing. It, it might be, <laughs> exactly. it should be probably called the fun. I think the reason that Acre calls it the bottleneck is because because of um, the concept that if they didn't exist in the value chain, it would be really, really hard to replace them and the whole value chain might fall apart. Like, imagine if Visa and MasterCard just didn't exist. It would be it would be a nightmare. Like, everyone operates on top of their rails. Commerce would just come to a halt, like, tomorrow, right? So that's maybe the bottleneck nature of it, right? Yeah, a but good example, a too, is, um, you know, for people, the infrastructure space has a lot of those on a different kind of level, right? Uh, if you think of uh, toll roads when that's the only option, well, there you go. That's a bottleneck business. You don't have a choice. If you want uh, to use the road, you have to pay up. If not, then good luck finding another way. Exactly. It's very hard to replace that good or service and get the same result. Right. Yeah, toll roads are a good way to think about it. Maybe I should buy more Brookfield based on that. Hey, <laughs> I don't think you can go wrong. I, I think I'll be buying more Brookfield regardless. So uh, I think that does it for this episode, guys. Uh, we, we talked about some earnings. We talked about RSP season coming up. Bottleneck businesses. The twin engines. If you can, you can see the twin engines and bottleneck business is kind of written into my framework that I have on the the back when you make an account for Stratosphere. So if you go to getstockmarket.com, G-E-T, stockmarket.com, it brings you right to my site there, Stratosphere. And that def- those concepts define what I think are great businesses in the model portfolios and the real money portfolios. And for the top pick section, 
here I am. I have PayPal and Square, the ones that you own, and the top picks. They keep going higher and higher, and I'm a loser for waiting for Stripe to go public. But that's okay. It's a long game, Simon. But uh, I think I think you're winning. I think you're winning this game. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Well. To be honest, <laughs> as long as your winners outweighs the, the losers and you're beating the benchmark, I think uh, anything beyond that is just gravy. Yes, sir. That does it for this week, guys. We'll see you next week, as always. Every Monday. You're posting them for every Monday, right, Simon? Yeah, yeah. Still yeah. doing every Monday. If ever, for whatever reason, we can't do it for the Monday, we'll uh, post it on our Twitter. If you're not familiar with our Twitter handles, we have it in the uh, notes of the show, uh, the Twitter for the show, but also Braden and I's uh, personal Twitter on there. Get Bredo Capital to 1,000 followers, please. <laughs> don't forget to pump. follow mine either no no that second pump bredo capital to a thousand no, i'm just kidding simon's posting lots of good stuff especially if you like crypto you're uh the fiat bit iceberg. of everything the yeah, fiat, fiat iceberg, iceberg himself i love it okay guys <laughs> we'll see you guys next week uh give it five stars by the way this podcast i'm patting myself on the back and simon you should do the same this podcast is absolutely exploding right now we are having uh, strong growth in the viewership. So we appreciate all of you and we will continue to do this. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.